The following message was given by Raymond Goodman on Sunday, March 15th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Go ahead, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those up to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. You can also pre-mark your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. We're going to continue our series on the church today that we've been calling the dearest place on earth. And we're going to do that by taking a closer look at baptism and the Lord's Supper. The two ordinances, or some prefer prefer the term sacraments, which the Lord Jesus Christ has commanded his church to perform in this age until he returns. Now, the two are different in the sense that baptism is intended to be a one-time experience in the Christian's life, whereas the Lord's Supper is intended to be a repeated experience in the Christian's life. However, the two are also similar in the sense that they are both designed by God to be outward physical representations of inward spiritual realities. I'll say that again. They are intended by God and designed by God to be outward physical representations of inward spiritual realities. They're both designed to serve as vivid reminders of what God has done for us through the gospel and in his son Jesus Christ. And that's what we want to see today as we continue our series and as we take a closer look at baptism and the Lord's Supper through the scriptures. And so if I could focus us for our time, what we want to do then is we want to look and see what are some of the inward spiritual realities to which God is pointing us through the ordinance of baptism. The same for the Lord's Supper. What are some of the inward spiritual realities to which God is pointing us in that ordinance? And practically speaking, how should the reminder of these spiritual realities shape our lives as Christians? And we'll pray in a moment, but before we do that, and then get into the scriptures, before we do that, let me, uh, let me say up front I I know some of the things that will come to your mind when you hear that we're going to be talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. You probably have things in mind that you want me to address during this time in this message, and I doubt very much that I will address many of those. In fact, there, there are some things that rightly belong in a discussion of these ordinances that we won't dwell upon at all, even if we do mention one or two of them in passing. For instance, I won't be spending much time on things like the continuing debate between Christians who believe on the one hand that we should baptize our infants, and on the other hand that we should only baptize people who have personally professed faith in Jesus. I'll briefly mention two things about that in just a minute, but we'll actually have a time in a few weeks, we're going to be offering, Lord willing, a class on baptism where we will actually be able to get into some of those things a little bit more. That class is going to take place on Sunday, April 5th, so Palm Sunday, in a few weeks. We plan to offer that class at both locations, and you can actually register for that right now. Registration is open, and you can do that by going to our website at redemptionhill.com, clicking on Event Registrations, and then selecting Baptism from the drop-down menu of categories there. So I'll mention two things, though, on that discussion. Uh, First, all of the elders and pastors of Redemption Hill Church are united in the conviction that in terms of the sequence, in terms of the sequence that we can observe in the Scriptures, baptism for a particular person should follow, as opposed to proceed, should follow the events of that person hearing and believing the gospel. And then ideally, participation in the Lord's Supper would follow those two. The second thing that I'll mention is that while the elders and pastors are all in agreement on those points, we have many members who have different convictions on those issues. And yet, those members happily hold their membership here at Redemption Hill Church. And we have always happily received them as members 
at the end of our membership process, which allows us to address differences like that through an examination of the scriptures. And if on the other end of that process we have a difference that remains, then we've all chosen to go forward together uh, on the basis of our spiritual unity in Christ through the gospel and the shared belief that we can all faithfully continue to serve Jesus as members of the same local church despite that difference. So with all of that said, let's pray now and then we'll jump into Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 5 or 1 through 7 and we'll take a closer look beginning with the meaning of baptism. So join me in prayer here. Lord, we do ask. We ask for your protection, first of all, over the lives of all those who are most at risk due to this coronavirus that we're hearing so much about in recent days. And we please ask you, Lord, to uh, grant wisdom to our civic leaders here at the local, state, and the national levels of government as they make important decisions about how to protect the lives of their respective residents and citizens. We also ask that you would continue to watch over those in our own church who are battling severe illnesses right now. Lord, in everything, we are greatly encouraged by the fact that they continue to stand firm in their faith and also by the fact that they continue to speak often of your goodness to them throughout their trials. Thank you for the support that they have received from the church. We know that you and your hand are in all of that. And now, Lord, finally, we ask that you would help us as we listen to your word together. You said that whatever two or three are gathered together in your name, um, there you are in the midst among us. And we're really, we're, we're testing that here this morning. But we ask that you would help us, Lord. That you would help me in particular in my efforts to explain your word to your people. That you would deepen our understanding and our experience of your grace as we consider the way that you have chosen to confirm the truth of the gospel for us in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everybody here said, Amen. All right, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Lord, again, help us as we walk through this together to talk about what baptism means and how you show yourself to us through that particular ordinance. And then later, as we talk about the Lord's Supper in the same way. Again, baptism and the Lord's Supper are intended to be outward physical representations of inward spiritual realities. And one of the first inward spiritual realities that we have the privilege of seeing through the ordinance of baptism is this. Baptism is an outward physical representation that we have been united with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. That God has supernaturally and truly joined us to Christ in the events of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So look with me at Romans chapter 6 in verse 3, starting there, we'll begin to see this even more closely. The Apostle Paul is dealing with a situation here in the Roman church. He's, he's anticipating some issues 
And in fact, in chapter 5, verse 20, he has just told them that wherever sin increased, grace increased all the more. And he anticipates that some of them may take that to mean, oh, well, I don't have to worry about my approach to life or to sin. Because if I do happen to sin, well, the backdrop of my sin will just be the occasion for God's grace to increase all the more. And Paul says, I I understand that you might be tempted to take the grace of God and the gospel as freedom to sin rather than freedom from sin. And so he begins to speak in chapter 6, and he anticipates a question they might have. And, And he says here, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase or abound all the more? And he says, by no means. In fact, this is the first of three questions Another one like this will show up in chapter 6, verse 15, and another one in chapter 7, verse 7, where he anticipates their incorrect thinking and their incorrect understanding of the grace of the gospel, and he he asks a question for them, and he follows it with the answer, by no means, and then he develops his point on how they should rather think about the grace of God. But here, in Romans chapter 6, he says, no, verse 2, don't you understand? You ought not to think of the grace of God that way. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Don't you know, verse 3, that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised, see, this literally happened to Jesus, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. In a a sense, we too might be raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. And you you can even see here, not only that God is saying we have been joined with Christ in the events of the gospel by which we are saved, namely his death, his burial, his resurrection. You can see here, how even the symbolism of that is best displayed by immersion or the dipping of the whole person in water. Again, we're not going to get into an argument about that, but the dipping of the whole person in water gives the opportunity for the water to serve as a kind of grave or a tomb into which we bury the person who has been crucified with Christ. We have died with Christ, we bury that old person with Christ, and we are raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. Fully displayed and symbolized as we go down into water and come up out of that water to live as a new person, a new creation, and a disciple of Jesus Christ. But you can see that here in verse 3. Paul says, Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? You see that? We have been joined with Christ in his death. And this is why the Apostle Paul will go on to say, not only here in verse 6, that our old self was crucified with Christ. He says the same thing to the Galatian church over in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Do you remember that? He says there, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But you see there, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, when we look at the cross of Christ in real time, we don't see that we were crucified with Christ. We see one person on that cross, correct? But God gives us eyes to see through his word that we, by the miraculous working of the gospel, were spiritually joined to Christ in that event. I have been crucified with Christ. And and here is how that practically helps us in our lives as Christians. The Apostle Paul here is trying to help the Christians in the church at Rome to live lives which are free from the power of sin. Anyone who has died, he says in Romans chapter 6 verse 7, has been freed from sin. In chapter 6 verse 14 he says, Sin will no longer be your master for you are no longer under the law, but under grace. He is encouraging them in the direction of living lives which are increasingly free from sin. And his way of doing that, this is what I want you to get, his way of doing that 
is to point them back to their baptism. Paul believes that there is real help for the Christian in terms of turning from sin and walking in righteousness. There is real help to be found in visiting our baptism and remembering what happened there and what it symbolizes. And so Paul says, don't you know that your baptism means something about how you ought to live right now? You are living like this old person who is still alive to sin, but that person died. Do you remember the water? That person died. A new person was raised with Christ. Walk in the newness of life. That is how this is intended to help us. I can also now say that where the law of God demands that I should die for my own sin, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, the soul who sins is the one who should die. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. That is what I deserve for the life of sin I have lived. However, while the law of God says that the soul who sins is the same one that should die, the grace of God allows for another to die in my place. Jesus dies in my place, but I have been crucified with Christ through the kindness and the miraculous work of God in the gospel. And therefore, when the law looks at me and says, you must die for your sin, I can respond in the grace of God, I have died. I already have died for those sins. Therefore, I do not need to die again. I have died, not literally, but truly, by the grace of God in the gospel. I have died with Christ. When he was crucified, I was crucified with him. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for me because I am in Christ and his death counts as my own. I no longer need to die for my own sin. I am free to live as a new blood-bought child of God. Hey, that, that is how Paul seeks to help those through the gospel, tangibly. And one of the ways he does that, and the primary way he does it here, is through a consideration of the ordinance of baptism. These are not just motions that we go through as Christians. These are, by the perfect and infinite wisdom of God, designed to provide us exactly with the spiritual help and power that we need for our daily Christian lives. Secondly, baptism is also an outward physical representation of the inward spiritual reality, and we've mentioned this here, that we have a new life from God which is increasingly free from the power of sin. Practically speaking, how should that help me? The next time you and I face temptation, we ought to be able to look back at our baptism and say, it is different now. I used to respond to that voice of sin as if it were my master. I obeyed what it wanted me to do. I just quickly ran in the direction of its impulses and desires, but no longer. I have been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ and by the gospel, by his spirit in me. I am not as I used to be. It reminds me of a story about St. Augustine. Augustine, if you've read his confessions, there's a portion in that story where he's talking about how he has been transformed by Christ. And he saw a former friend of his that he used to run around with, and they both lived a sinful life together. And, and this friend of his saw him from a distance and said, Augustine, Augustine. And he turned around and saw who it was and just turned right, right back around without acknowledging the person. And the person looked again to, to see, is that really Augustine? Are my eyes playing tricks on me? And as the person looked closer, they said, it, it is Augustine. Hey, Augustine, it's, it, is, it's, it is I. You remember? And Augustine looks back at that former friend and says, yes, but it is no longer I. I am different now. I am a new creation in Christ. And whatever you were thinking I was going to run into with you today, it's not happening anymore. Friends, we ought to be able to say the same thing. In the same way that Christ was raised and got up and left that tomb, you and I, by God's grace, have the power and help that we need 
to get up and to leave those sinful lives and sinful patterns. There is power in the gospel for that. Baptism is a reminder and an outward representation of the inner spiritual realities that we have been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and also that we have a new life from God, which is increasingly free from the power of sin. And here's what I love. As I was thinking about this this week, and in particular I was reading a book by a guy named Tim Chester entitled Truth We Can Touch. And I believe the subtitle is something like How the Ordinances Shape Our Lives or Ought to Shape Our Lives. But this book was doing a good job of helping me to understand this in the scriptures as well as I, as I walk through them. One of the things I love the most about these ordinances or sacraments is that they confirm for us the truths of the gospel by which God sets us free. They confirm these truths for us in very special ways, in ways that we can see and in ways that we can touch. In fact, it makes these otherwise invisible realities visible for us. And God in his infinite wisdom knows how much we need that. He knows how much we need that or he wouldn't have given them to us. See, instead of just conveying these truths to us with only words or thoughts put into words, God has chosen to confirm these truths for us through the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And he's chosen to, conf to, to confirm these truths in a way then that involves more of our total selves. Do you realize that? Like in the way that God has planned this, it involves more of our total selves in the experience of these truths. Rather than simply being accessed by the mind and that one human sense or epistemological tool, God has actually given us things we can touch. He, he has actually employed all of the fullness of our humanity, the fullness of our human senses in the experience of the benefits of the gospel. We can see the water. We can touch the water. In fact, the water ought to touch every part of us. We can hear what's going on. If those are gathered around, we can, we, we, we're out there. We feel these things. They confirm for us the inner realities we would not be able to touch or see. And if you baptize people like we do in the James River, maybe even God employs a sense of smell. But you understand here, God knows what he's doing. I, I, I remembered sitting for, for months as I was coming to faith in Christ as a young man, 20 years old at the time, and, and I was trying to figure out whether or not baptism was important. Is it necessary? And I was only viewing that from my own feeble human perspective. It must be necessary if God put it into his plan. You know, I have conversations with people from time to time. And they say, well, I just... I don't feel led to be baptized. I'm, I, they're, they're truly Christians now. They say, I, I just don't feel led to be baptized, or I don't, I don't see why it's necessary. Might I submit to you that in the infinite and superior wisdom of God, He has deemed it important for you, for the fullness of your humanity to be involved in the experience of the benefits of the gospel. Why not submit yourself in full trust and confidence toward God, to the ordinances that he has provided for and given to his church? That's one of the things I love the most about these ordinances. And in fact, when we turn now to the Lord's Supper, God even employs the human sense of taste. Let's look really quickly here at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, I'm actually going to read all the way from verse 17 down through 29. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 29. We'll focus mostly on that latter part there in verse 23 through 29. But in the following instructions, verse 17, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now let me pause for a moment before I continue and let me just kind of give you a sense of the context of Paul's letter to the Corinthians up to this point. Paul 
has written this letter to the Corinthian church. And in chapter 7, verse 1, the letter takes a turn. Paul, Paul switches there from a discussion of things that, that he's talking about and leading up to that point. And then at chapter 7, verse 1, we see the Apostle Paul say, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. You see that? Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And so what he's doing from here on out in the letter is he's beginning to address one subject at a time the different things that they asked him about in a previous letter that was delivered to Paul so that he could address those matters for them. And one of the first things he addresses is the issue of marriage and the relationships between men and women in the church. And, and he says there, Now, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation that abounds, it is good for a man to have his own wife. And so what you'll find is that over the next few chapters, the Apostle Paul begins to employ this approach where he says, here are some things that I agree with and that you have correct, but here's something that I need to correct. And no doubt the Apostle Paul was addressing each of the factions that had developed within the church to restore their unity and to say to one group, yes, yes, what you're saying here to the others is correct, but let me address this. Yes, over here, what you're saying about food sacrifice to idols in chapter 8, yes, that's, that's correct. Yeah, an idol is nothing, we understand that, but not everybody has that knowledge. And you don't want to act in a way that would destroy your Christian brother or sister for whom Christ died by your superior knowledge, which is not met with, with equal love. And he begins to address them, and he's commending them for various things, and then he's bringing a slight word of correction. The difference here at this point, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, is he has nothing positive to say to the church. There is no positive thing to commend here before he jumps into the correction. It's as if, it's as if, if, you, if you're familiar with the letter of, of Galatians, he just jumps right into the correction here. No pleasantries. And he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must certainly be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you, or literally in the Greek, those who have passed the test, might be evident. But he goes on there to say that when you come together in verse 20, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They might call it by that name. But Paul says the way in which you are approaching the Lord's table and the Lord's Supper actually renders it something completely different altogether. When you come together, verse 20, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hun hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, I don't know exactly what was going on here in this setting, but what we do know is that back in this time in the Roman world, they didn't really operate on the same seven-week day or that calendar that, that we have now. It was more of a ten-day sort of calendar and a lunar calendar for the year and for the month. And so what would happen is the Christians would, in their celebrations, in their weekly gatherings, operate on a seven-day week. So they lived as citizens of Rome on that 10-day week. They, they lived as Christians in terms of their, their gatherings and their celebrations on the seven-day calendar of the Jews. Now, that presented a unique challenge for those who were working throughout the day because the weekend, the civil or, or Roman weekend, per se, did not always line up then with, with the weekend for their celebrations of the Lord's Supper and that sort of a thing. 
So imagine a situation where after everyone is coming from work, they're gathering somewhere later in the evening to celebrate the Lord's Supper and the Christian unity that they all have regardless of their socioeconomic status. What happens when those who are not hourly wage workers because of their wealth come a little bit earlier with really nice food and enjoy a time of fellowship with all the other people who are wealthier and members of their own social class and a nice strong drink to put them in a merry state before anyone else can arrive. And then the tradespeople come in right after that after, and, and, and find their Christian brothers and sisters having enjoyed a great time without them and some of them even drunk. Now what does that do for Christian unity? What statement does that make about the gospel? Well, they probably say, oh, well, I'm a little late to the party, but they pull out their prepared lunches. But then those who are bond servants or slaves would have come even later, perhaps. They, they put the kids to bed. They, uh, they, they put the animals away. Whatever they had to do. And the Apostle Paul looks at them and, and says in verse 22, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? No wonder he has nothing positive to say about the way in which they participate and celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so he begins to correct them by a reminder of what he received and passed on. Look at verse 23. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, let me pause before we go on. I won't say too much about this either. This is one of the things I won't dwell upon. But there is a long history of debate between various professing Christians, denominations, and traditions on how the elements of the Lord's Supper are to be viewed. On the one end, we have Catholics, others um, uh, in that end as well, who would say that the elements of the bread and the wine are literally transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus in the Catholic Mass. Okay, now that is something called transubstantiation, and that is not the position we hold as a church. Right, that many people throughout the world hold that position that is different from the one that we hold. There is another position that would have been held by someone like Martin Luther that we would call consubstantiation. Martin Luther believed that the elements did not become the body and blood of Jesus per se, but that Christ was present in, with, and under the elements. One illustration used is sort of like the way Water is present in a sponge. Water is not the sponge, but it is present in the sponge when the sponge is present. Consubstantiation. That is not the position of our church either. Okay? We simply believe that the elements of the Lord's Supper symbolize the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and serve to remind us that he is actually present with us when we gather in his name. In fact, let me read you this. This is coming from the Second London Baptist Confession, written all the way back in 1689. Now, the, the, I'll say this too, and you Presbyterians will appreciate this. Much of the language is really just copied from the Westminster Confession, written 43 years earlier. So you, you have one on the Baptists there. But I am going to read it for the sake of the Baptists. I'm going to read it from our confession in 1689. And here is what that says. The outward elements in this ordinance, properly set apart for the use ordained by Christ, have such a relationship to Christ crucified that they are sometimes called, truly though figuratively, by the names of the things they represent. That is, the body and blood of Christ. However, in substance and nature, they still remain truly and only bread and wine as they were before. You get that? No actual literal change has occurred, but we refer to them by the names of the things they represent. It goes on to say this, 
those who outwardly partake of the visible elements, in dem- now pause, in demonstrating that we believe Christ to be truly present in the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, it goes on to say, quote, those who outwardly partake of the visible elements in this ordinance also by faith inwardly receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. They do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. All right, so that does accurately reflect the position of your church if you belong to Redemption Hill. Now, let's look again and let's see a couple of things that the Lord's Supper is intended to represent. What are the inward spiritual realities that the Lord's Supper points us to as we consider and participate in it? Number one, the Lord's Supper is an outward physical representation of the inward spiritual reality that Jesus is with us when we gather as a church. And I want to underscore that. I forget this. In the most important sense of the words, remember and forget. I am so accustomed to gathering with other believers each week that I think the word forget is appropriate. I forget the reality of Jesus' presence. Actual presence among us, even right now. We have more than two or three, we do. Even right now. I dare say, and, and, and I believe this is not a stretch at all, and you would probably agree with me about yourself. I think my approach to Sunday mornings would be dramatically different if I actively and consciously remembered this in the greatest sense of the word every time we gather. Matthew chapter 18, verse 20. We're familiar with this, but I want you to hear it this morning. For wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That is worth believing. That right now, wherever you happen to be listening to this, we are gathered right now by means of technology. We are gathered in greater numbers than those required to call upon and, and, and bring about the presence of Christ among us. He is with us. And he, he says right here in our passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as we get back into it in verse 23 and 24, notice what he says here. Verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We've talked about what that does not mean, but he says, This is my body. They would have seen his literal body and distinguished his literal body from the bread about which he said that, there would have been no confusion in the earliest disciples. There need not be any confusion amongst us. There is his actual body, and then there is the bread. But he says, this is my body. Take it. Eat it. This is for you. And in doing so, he is saying, I want you to understand I am present with you when you gather. And you don't just have to access that truth with this thought and these words that I'm giving you. You can touch it. You see? And you can go further than that in a moment, and you can actually taste it. The kindness of God in how far he has gone to bring these truths near to our souls. In fact, all the way into the very fullness of our humanity through our senses and into our, 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 our lives. The kindness of God. The wisdom of God. This is my body. This cup, verse 25. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Christ is present with us when we gather, and in particular as we approach the Lord's Supper. 
One of the second, or one of the things, a second thing that we are reminded of here, a spiritual reality that we, we can access through the Lord's Supper and that is confirmed for us in this ordinance is the fact that Jesus has put his life into us. Now, now think here for a moment. In John chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 6, Jesus said something that really bothered the people who were listening to him. They enjoyed his teaching. They thought he had some great things to say. And then one day, he gave a mini-sermon, and he said to them, Now, I, I see that you're agreeing with much that I'm saying, but now you have to eat me and drink me. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, or you will have no life in you. And that, that presented a struggle for people. For those who took it literally, they said, this is a hard teaching. And many of them left that day. But Jesus says in John 6, verse 63, no, the words I speak to you are spirit and life. The flesh counts for nothing. What I'm saying to you is, my, my flesh is real food. My blood is real drink. And in John chapter 6, verse 37, and, and shortly thereafter, he explains, whoever comes to me will never thirst. Whoever believes in me, or rather, whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. See, in the coming, we are fed. In the believing, our thirst is quenched. See, see, the coming is the eating of Jesus' flesh. The believing is the drinking of his blood. In that way, in coming and believing upon hearing the gospel, he puts his life into us. You see that? Jesus promises that he would be in us. He, he says... I in you, you in me, in the same way that the Bible describes our new life as being in Christ. Romans chapter 8 verse 10 says, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Colossians 1.27 tells us that Christ in you is the hope of glory. Jesus is in us. He has put his life in us. And, and how does he confirm that truth for us? Bread and wine. Or bread and juice. He gives us truth that we can touch and taste. And as we take in the bread, and as we take of the cup, we remember that just as the elements have gone into our bodies, the life of Christ has entered our soul. Just as truly as the elements have entered our bodies. Truth we can touch. The wisdom and kindness of God. Jesus is with us when we gather, and Jesus has put his very life into us. We want to remember these truths. And now let me say just a few things by way of application um, as we get ready to close here. A few things by way of application. Let me address two problems that I'm sure Many other churches, other than our own, many other churches, I'm sure, encounter this just as we do in the time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, number one, one of the problems we face is the problem of those who would disqualify themselves on the grounds that they are unworthy. Now let me just say this. It, it is a given that all those invited to the table of the Lord are unworthy people. What the scripture denounces here in verse 27 of 1 Corinthians is eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. He says there, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Therefore, he says in verse 28, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, so you can see there, it is, it is not the individual who is disqualified because of his or her perceived unworthiness. It is a given that we are all unworthy people. We are no less invited. Because in the grace of God, though we are unqualified, we are not thereby disqualified. All right, so God invites us, if you have come to faith in Christ, all those who have turned from sin and repentance upon hearing the gospel and trusted in Christ are always welcome at his table. And it is a foreshadowing as well 
of the great banquet which we will eat and drink anew with Christ in the coming age. You can read more about that in Luke chapter 22 and Revelation chapter 19. You will be invited there and you are invited now. Okay? Now, despite our unworthiness, we are no less invited. Remember that. And in fact, I would go as far as saying the unity we're meant to display at the Lord's table is less complete if you refuse the Lord's invitation. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, here's what it says. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, because, watch this, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for, because we all partake of the one bread. We all partake of the one bread. All who are called by the name of Christ in that setting. We all partake of the one bread. Is our unity destroyed or unacceptable if we have less than 100% of that participation? No, of course not. Of course not. That's not what we mean to say here. But, we don't want to go to the extreme of disqualifying ourselves where the Lord has not done so. Okay? The second problem that we have, the second problem that we have, is the problem of those who approach the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner because of a failure to examine ourselves and to treat as urgent things which the Lord would treat as urgent in our lives at that moment. To come in a cavalier and nonchalant manner. In verse 27 and 28, we see shades of this. Drinking and eating in an unworthy manner. And so verse 28 says, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Interestingly enough, there again, see, the examination is to culminate or lead to not abstaining from, but rather participating in the Lord's Supper. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And in context, it would be fair to say the failure to rightly discern the body has a lot to do with the incorrect relationships that are being displayed and the factions and distinctions, ungodly divisions being maintained even at the point where we approach the Lord's table, where we each receive a tangible reminder of our equality before the Lord in our sinfulness and in the extent to which we're forgiven. No one gets more there than another. We have an equal share in the grace that comes from the cross. And, and so Paul is addressing that problem here of those incorrect relationships. And I, I, like the way, I like the way that Wayne Grudem has put it here. He says, quote, As we approach the Lord's table, the call to examine ourselves means that we ought to ask whether our relationships in the body of Christ are in fact reflecting the character of the Lord whom we meet there and whom we represent. And in fact, he says in this connection, Jesus' teaching about coming to worship in general should also be mentioned. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 through 24, he says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Grudem goes on to say, Jesus here tells us that whenever we come to worship, we should be sure that our relationships with others are right. And if they are not, we should act quickly to make them right and then come to worship God in that way. This admonition ought to be especially true when we come to the Lord's Supper. So concluding then, let me say this, friends, God has given us the ordinances, or the sacraments, if you will, of baptism and the Lord's Supper as outward physical representations of inward spiritual realities. They serve as vivid reminders of what God has done for us in the gospel through his son, Jesus Christ. And among other things, we learn in tangible ways that we've been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We've received a new life from God that is increasingly free from the power of sin. 
We know that Jesus is with us when we gather in his name. And Jesus has put his life into us. And God has done all of this and confirmed these truths for us in ways that make full use of our entire selves, that call every aspect of our humanity and the fullness of our human senses into the experience of the gospel. God in his infinite wisdom has chosen to do it that way. And, and particularly when we separate or rather celebrate the Lord's Supper, we see that Christ has put his life into us and also that we have an opportunity and an occasion to make sure that everything which needs to be put right between us is put right by the very same grace of God that put things right between us and him. The next time we have the occasion to separate the Lord's, or, or rather to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, I want us to remember this. I want us to remember this and to examine ourselves appropriately. It's not a time for someone else to examine you. The Bible says let each person examine himself, herself. But examine ourselves. And if any relationship within the church is not right, if you are still at odds with someone, then take the presence of Christ at that moment seriously. And do not try to come before him under the pretense of unbroken fellowship when, when you continue to have that sort of broken relationship with your, your fellow brother and sister in Christ. Jesus would look at you and say what he said in Matthew chapter 5. Hey, go address that and then come back. Yes, he has received you. Yes, you are forgiven. But go, go and deal with that relationship the way that a Christian should. And then come back and offer your gift. And then come back and offer your gift. Friends, that's my challenge to us as a church, is to, to be baptized if we have not, and to take the Lord's table seriously the next time we have that opportunity. And if you're listening to this, I'll wrap up with this, but if you're listening to this and you know that you have never truly received Jesus Christ and given him your life, then that means your sins have yet to be forgiven. Uh, everyone is concerned right now about the coronavirus as we should be, but I am telling you that is a condition far worse than anything the coronavirus can produce. Your sins have not yet been forgiven, and you do not want to appear before God as your judge in that way. All of that, however, can change for you right now. You need only to turn to Jesus with humility and acknowledge your need for him and what he did when he died for sinners like us on the cross and when God raised him from the dead. Confirm your belief and confess your belief that God raised him from the dead and give Jesus your life today. He will receive you. You will have new life. And you will be just as welcomed at the table of the Lord, both now and in eternity, as anyone else. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would help us um, as we reflect upon the, the symbols and the outward representations that we have been graciously given in these ordinances, but even more so on the inner or rather the inward realities they represent. We, we thank you for the realities of the gospel that we can now enjoy as forgiven sinners. We ask, Lord, that you would bring them near to our souls and that you would heal any divisions among us that should not continue because we are called by your name. We ask this in that great name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.